Hey, thank you very much, Kevin and team, Alicia and company. Thank you so much for leading us, Jerry. Thank you for being here as well. Well, you're catching us in the last part of a five-part series that we're calling Identity Crisis. And uh, in this series, we've tried to address questions around the very nature of who we are as people, who I am as a person and who you are as a person. We've asked some big questions in here, and these are questions that I think everybody asks at some point in their lives, whether they verbalize them this way or not, they ask them. The first question, week one, we asked the question of why am I here? Tried to answer that by saying we're here to image God by loving others, kind of smash that together. Week two, we ask this question, what am I worth? And again, we rarely look in the mirror and ask that question, but we often feel that sense of self-worth or self or worthlessness. What is my identity you know, based in? We talked there about you are worth the life of God, that we've been bought with a price, and that price is the price of Jesus Christ. In week three, we ask this question, this one you definitely never ask, I don't think. If you have, that's a little unusual, but so what am I made of? We talked about the need to understand ourselves as both material and immaterial, physical and spiritual beings and the need to see both together. Last week we asked this question, a question that we all wrestle with, this one for sure if we're honest, we've looked in the mirror and thought this, and that is this, what do I do with my hang-ups? What do I do with the things that keep coming after me that actually get in the way of me doing the things that I really want to do, those habits, those experiences, whatever it might be, that are causing me to get stuck along the way of my own growth in whatever really I want to do. And so we talked about that last week talked about this truth that there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, and we tried to really you know, zone in on that. This week I want to ask another question, and that is this, and this is the final question. It's this, where am I going? Where am I going? Not where am I going vocationally, not where am I going the next 10, 15, 20 years, but where am I going ultimately? Is there ultimately a place where you are going to be going? Is there an eternity, if you will, in mind? Now, if you've been in church for a while, you probably already have an assumed answer to this question, and that is, well, sure, there's a heaven and there's a hell. Let's wrap it up, go home, grab some lunch. We can call it quits early. But if, if you know in this world you have friends of people who don't always believe that and who aren't necessarily convinced of the simplicity of that, because the truth is to think like that is a very morally complicated reality. To think that the world exists and that the future world exists where there is a heaven of eternal bliss and a hell of eternal torment is a very difficult thing to process. I don't mind talking about the heaven part, but I struggle with, and I think if you're honest too, you also struggle with, I'm not sure about that part, so can we not talk about that part too long, please? So what I want to do this morning is give an, a, an idea, really an overview of this, and then I want to dive into another question that I don't have up here, and that is where am I going? And really the question underneath this question is what do I do with the fact that I'm going somewhere. And so I want to talk about that toward the end as a big emphasis there. So where am I going? A couple options for you. One, you can either believe there is an eternity and there's life after this life, or two, you can believe there's not. I don't know if there's really another option in there. Depending on your world religion, you believe one or the other of those. That there is a life after this life, and you could call it whatever you want to, or there isn't anything. For those who believe there isn't anything, and I have friends like this, and you probably do too, um, that can turn into one of two areas. If you believe this is it, this life is it, it can either lead you toward um, hedonism or depression, kind of either, either spectrum. You can become depressed. It sometimes leads to suicide when people think that I no longer have anything to live for because this is it and this isn't all that great anyway. You know, boom. Another place this actually leads to, and I've seen people, I have friends of mine who are over in this camp, by the way, and you probably do too, who say, because there's nothing else, then I better take every advantage of what is. Like, I'm going to take every advantage of the day that I have. And so every moment with you is even more precious than before because once it's over, it's gone. I've seen people turn into um, saving the rainwater, um, 
we're going to use cloth diapers now and, and napkins. We're going to eat all the kale that exists in the universe now. And I'm not trying to, to dog that lifestyle, but I'm saying I've seen people who have gone into this space and be like, I'm going to save the planet because the planet is all that we have. Not against saving the planet, just what's underneath that for some people is I'm going to do everything I can to save this space here. Then there's people over here who are like, I think there's more to life. I think there's an attorney. I think there's a potentially a heaven or a hell. Um, a, a great uh, thinker, writer, C.S. Lewis, put it this way when he talked about the longings or the urgings that are kind of stirred up in all of humanity across the spectrum. He said it this way, if we find within ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. He begins to put words around this impression that every person has felt that there's, I think there's something more. And if you're a human being, you think differently than, for example, a cat would think. Like I, I can't imagine a cat or a dog or any animal sitting around philosophizing, wondering about the future of life. I mean, maybe a meal, yes, maybe about five minutes ahead of time, sure, but definitely not thinking about tomorrow and certainly not thinking about endless tomorrows somewhere along the line. There's something qualitatively different about being a human that is different than an animal. And, and Lewis would say, if you find within yourself that desire, that interest, the, only, the best logical explanation is maybe, maybe you're made for something more. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, we read this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he has also set eternity Boom, plunked that concept down into the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And so in the Old Testament, we begin to read this idea that there's something that has been wired, hardwired into humanity that sets eternity there, and then we wrestle with it. We question it. We wonder, what is the future of it? If we're honest, if I'm honest with you, if all we had in the, the Bible that you hold or that you scroll through in your phone or your tablet, if all we had was the Old Testament, honestly, we'd be confused about whether there is a heaven or if there's a hell. We would think that there's actually something called Sheol, and that's it. Like we would not really be clear about a real heaven, and we certainly wouldn't be clear about a real hell. In fact, some of the religious leaders, even in Jesus' day, didn't even believe in a resurrection. They didn't even believe in an afterlife because it wasn't clear from the Old Testament alone. And so when Jesus comes to the, to the forefront, he begins teaching about eternity in a way that was different than what was taught before, in a way that is clearer than was taught before. And it's only really from Jesus' time that we, if you're a Christian, if you begin to get an idea of a heaven or a hell, it's not because of the Old Testament. You may read that back into the Old Testament, but it's not because of the Old Testament. You get that because of Jesus, because of his teaching and why he came, just the way it is. So here's one of the, the most famous passages. I want, I want to take you to Jesus' teachings, and I want to go from there. One of the most famous passages, Greg, I think, saw a sign for it earlier, John 3.16. I don't know if you've seen John 3.16 in this light, but check it out for a minute. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Look at the contrast in one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Jesus came so that there won't be a perishing, but there will be an eternal life. It immediately contrasts a perishing with an eternity. The very next verse, John 3, 17, says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Not to condemn, but to save. In John 3, 16 and 17, Jesus immediately has come for a reason. Not to condemn, not that you may perish, but that you can have eternal, that you may be saved. And immediately in Jesus' life, he has come for this very purpose, and he begins to kind of lay out, there is something here in a future, in a heaven or a hell. If we're honest, this is challenging. 
It's challenging not just because of a heaven, but also because of the possibility and the moral complexity of talking about hell and what that means, especially if you're going to talk about hell and a loving God at the same time, then I get that. So I'm not going to try to resolve it all. Isn't that exciting? I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to leave you with some tension in the room, and then I want to tell you some ideas of what I think. Okay? So let me, let me kind of bring some um, shared language to the room for a minute. When Jesus comes in and speaks about heaven, um, he speaks in John 14 uh, about heaven. And in John 14, he's actually with the disciples in the upper room, in a place that is the last place that he's going to be with them um, before the crucifixion, very intimate environment. And he says in there, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God also, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. Jesus also speaks to the thief on the cross, says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. In Luke, a couple of different verses in Luke, he says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And so Jesus paints this picture of a heaven that I'm going to prepare a place, actually a place for you. And in that space, there's people who rejoice in people who come to faith in Christ. So he begins to paint this picture of an immediacy for people who have faith. To the guy on the cross, when you die today, 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 you'll be with me in paradise. The teaching in the New Testament is to be absent with the body if you believe in Jesus, is to be present with the Lord. Christians from Jesus' teaching believe if you die in this life, you then go to heaven, an eternal place of being with God forever, and you are with, present with the Lord. That's what Christians believe. Now, that's on the heaven side. It would be great if that's all there was, but there isn't. The fact that there is a heaven also has to include the fact that there is a hell. You can't have a heaven without a hell. What's the point of that? I mean, if everybody goes to heaven, you you can't, can't do that. Heaven, hell. Jesus came so that people could be saved and not perish, not to condemn, but to save. And so there's this picture of hell. The the truth is, Jesus actually talks about hell more than all of the other authors of the Bible combined. Okay, so the the very one who is the incarnate, who's fleshed out the love of God, who is the one who is the representation of God in the flesh, he is the one who is talked more about hell than all the other authors combined. So it's strange that way, if you think about it that way. So things get kind of funny when we talk about hell. In Matthew, 28, Jesus, or Matthew 10, Jesus says this, Don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In Matthew 25, he says, And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so here's the, the big idea. Uh, there are... There are as many ideas about hell as there are ideas about who should be the next president of the United States. Okay? Everybody has an opinion, and I'm not sure any of us is right about what exactly will happen. But everybody has an opinion about hell, about what it will look like, about what it means. But here's a couple things I want to say, and then I want to get down to the question of what do we do in light of an eternity. Hell is often pictured in the New Testament as a place of darkness and fire, and it just is the way it is. It's pictured as a place of, like, um, if you grew up in church, you've heard kind of eternal torment kind of a thing. The question we have to ask is, is this a literal place of fire and darkness, where literally there's literal fire and literal darkness? Number one, it's hard to have darkness and fire at the same time. Number two, if you have 
um, souls in hell right now, not physical bodies, which we would, then fire doesn't have an impact on the soul. And so I would line up with a majority of, of, of thinkers on this to say that we're probably speaking about a metaphorical language of fire and darkness. Now that being said, it doesn't mean that it's easier or nicer. Just means that I'm not sure we're actually talking about literal flames licking and literal darkness happening at the same time, but that there is this picture of the fire being the deterioration, if you will, of the soul and the, the body, and darkness being this isolation from the God who has made you. Now, I can flesh that out a little bit more, but here's what I believe, big picture about hell, and you can ultimately decide what you, you believe about that, that ultimately... That ultimately, God gives us what we choose. It's the easiest way for me to put that. If you on this earth choose that I want, I, I want to know this God and to follow this God of the universe, what is going to happen ultimately for you is you will know him and you will continue to know him on up through heaven. If you choose on this side of eternity to say, I don't want to know God at all. In fact, I don't even think he's a, a, one who I'd want to, to invest in at all. And you move towards selfishness, toward independence from God, then you get what you have chosen. I'm choosing independence from God, which moves me in this direction. Moves me toward a self-centered lifestyle. Moves me toward a place that is not a place of God. And ultimately, if, if hell and heaven are eternal, the question becomes, what happens to the soul that has chosen each path? What happens to the soul who chooses the path of intimacy with God in a billion years? And what happens to the soul who chooses separation, independence from God in a billion years? And if you ever had a day, you've ever had a season, I have, where I've sat around and I realized, you know what, I've been feeling sorry for myself for the past couple days. Like I've been sick, I've been tired, I've been worn out. And in those moments when I find myself to be the most selfish, I think, you know what, I'm not, I don't even like who I am right now. You ever have that thought? I don't even like what I just did. I don't even like the thing about me that just rose up to the surface. And that thing usually, that thing usually is some um, expression of selfishness, some expression of pride, and certainly an expression of independence from God. I don't want to submit to anybody. I just want things my own way. The question is, what becomes of the soul if that is unhinged, if that is unfiltered, if that becomes the greatest expression of who in the world we are? And in a billion years, imagine a soul like that breaking itself apart in darkness and isolation from the very God who has made it with no hope of returning to that space. And that's what I see in heaven and in hell. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, what is hell then? It is God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen to go our own way, to be our own master of our fate, the captain of our soul. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice all receive what they have actually chose, either to be with God forever worshiping him or without God forever worshiping themselves. So either way you cut this, however you decide that you want to figure out the hell thing and the heaven thing, either way you cut that, the teaching of Jesus is clear. He teaches a heaven and he teaches a hell. He talks about both more than any other author in the New Testament. So we have to wrestle that down to the ground to some degree. What I want to get to is not just that I would say that Jesus teaches there's a heaven and a hell. What I want to get to in the minutes we have remaining is what in the world do you do with that? What in the world do I do with that? Almost whatever iteration of hell looks like or iteration of heaven kind of looks like, my question underneath this is what do I do in light of where I am going? 
What do I do in light of that? And to get you there, I want to take you to a place in your Bible that actually asks that question almost directly. And it's in Luke chapter 10. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew near you. That is our gift to you if you don't own one. But Luke chapter 10, uh, in what we call the New International Version, it is the third book in the New Testament. Kind of turn, open your Bible and turn two-thirds to the right, and you'll find the New Testament, and you'll find... Uh, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25, there's a, an expert in the law who stands up to test Jesus and to question him. You're going to know this story, I bet, even if you haven't been in church, you're going to know where we're going, and you'll see it in just a minute. So verse 25 of chapter 10, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, and he said, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, here's how I read this. He's saying, in light of eternity, there's going to be an eternity of some kind. In light of that eternity, what must I do now in my present to get to that eternal place? What do I need to do? What are my actions need to do to get to eternal life? So in other words, in light of that, what do I need to do now? Verse 26. Well, what is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? This is a very interesting answer in verse 27. This is actually more complex than it first appears. Verse 27, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and with all your mind. That, by the way, should be the end of it right there. That is actually in the law. That is the answer to Jesus' question. But this teacher of the law has heard Jesus' teachings, and he knows that Jesus is actually, in his teaching, he's added a second component to this primary commandment. And so the teacher of the law reiterates to Jesus the right answer. He reiterates not just what's in the, the Old Testament law, but he actually says, without saying it, Jesus, you have added and love your neighbor as yourself. And so since I'm here in front of you, I'm going to add this because you said it, and I think it's kind of neat. So love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So this guy is thinking, and he's merging Jesus' teaching with the old teaching. So verse 28, Jesus answers, you've answered correctly. He replied, do this and you will live. Conversation over. Thanks for coming, everybody. Go home. Except verse 29 because this guy's not done, he still has an unsettled question. He asks another question. He wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, even if you haven't been in church, and that's fine, I understand that, what Jesus then goes into is telling the story of the Good Samaritan, in which you probably know, again, even if you haven't been in church. But let's plunge into this, because this is a picture story of what to do in light of eternity. In reply, verse 30, Jesus said, a man, he doesn't identify who this man was, he just says a man, an unidentified man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, that's important because now I can't identify him, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so to a Levi, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Let's pause it right there in the story. Why would they do this? And the bottom line is, the labels are gone from this person. I don't know who this person is anymore. I want you to imagine for a minute the anxiety that you felt when you were in junior high or high school, walking into the cafeteria and wondering, where should I sit? Whose table 
should I sit at and where do I belong here in this space? And as you take your tray from the end of the line and kind of raise your eyes up and look out, you begin to see, hopefully, hopefully you see some friends. If you don't, you begin to panic internally, but you're pushed out of the line and must continue to move. And you hope that you pick the right table because every table has a label, because every person has a label. And you could find the jock table, you could find the nerd table, you could find, I don't know what we call them now anymore, and maybe some of the words aren't appropriate for me to say in this space, but we have tables, we have labels, we have people who identify with different groups of people. And you hope, you hope ultimately that the table you find will bring you the greatest belonging and that you can avoid the table that nobody else likes. Those people over there. Now imagine for a minute though that when you get off that line and you've paid, you swipe the card, you paid, you look up and for a moment everything is frozen. Actually everything is frozen, frozen. People are not moving and it's like a picture has been taken and you can look in that picture. And in that moment you have no ability to even tell gender in the room. Like it's almost as if everyone looks exactly the same and is wearing all white. You have no ability to tell who are the cool people Who are the uncool people? Who are the socially backwards people? Who are the people that are awesome? Who are the people you just can't see a single thing? You can't distinguish anymore where you should sit, but you have to keep moving. This is the problem that these priests and Levites had. They have no ability to know who is this man on the side of the road. All of the labels are gone. I don't know what my actions should be. If that guy on the side of the road is a robber, if he's a criminal, and it turns out that I find out later that I sat at the wrong table or I helped the wrong person, that's going to negatively impact my reputation. What if it turns out later that that man, what if that man is gay? What do I do then? I helped that man. Are you kidding? What if it turns out that that man has had an affair Oh, you're the priest who helped the the man with the affair rather than let him bleed on the side of the road. Would have been better off dead. I can't risk it all because the labels are gone and I don't know who he is. I need to tell you, this week I had a conversation with someone. We were talking about uh, uh, a man who died in our community, in this community. And they said, uh, you know, the, the individual who died, they're looking for help for their, their funeral. The family is looking for help for their funeral. But the person who died um, has been, here's a label, has been a druggie most of his life. And they're asking for help from the funeral, but we know we can't ask some churches because churches will be afraid to give to a druggie's funeral. I said, are you serious? Are you serious? You're afraid to ask churches because they'd be afraid to give to a druggie's funeral? Really? In other words, what they're saying is we think the churches will walk by on the other side because that's too unclean to touch. Like the priest and the Levite. The labels are strong and they're still a part of what I deal with and still a part of what you deal with. And so Jesus is pushing on this man and he goes on, he says... But, but, instead of the priest and the Levite, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Your version might say had compassion on him. In the New Testament, that word compassion, that word pity, is always, always, always associated with action. 
Compassion always leads to action in the New Testament. It always does. You can't have compassion and have it not lead to action. You can feel sorry for somebody and have it not lead to action. You can feel sorry and have an emotional reaction to a TV commercial about needs in the world and then flip the channel. You felt sorry, but you didn't have compassion, not in the biblical sense of the term. So compassion always leads to action. And so this Samaritan, you know the story, he went to him, he bandaged his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. He took the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. And then Jesus asked the question, verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the only right answer, the one who had mercy on him. It's an interesting conclusion to the story because Jesus then says, go and do likewise. See, the, the teacher of the law is done at this moment. He's done. There's no additional question that he has. I believe the teacher of the law is hearing this. He doesn't need more clarity. His question was, who is my neighbor? He wanted to know who he can avoid and who are the right people to help. And Jesus turned it on its head and said, who are you being a neighbor to? The teacher of the law doesn't have another question in response. He sees it, and he sees the ugliness of his own heart. I believe, this is beyond the, the Bible now, this is just me. I believe the teacher was like, hmm, I got nothing for you. In fact, what you've just done, Jesus, is you've exposed a part of my heart that I don't want to deal with. So I don't even want to ask you another question. I'm just going to quietly slink out the back of the room. I don't need any more clarity I mean, I know what I should do. I'm just probably not going to do that. Because, Jesus, what if the person on the side of the road turns out to be somebody who, if I help, I lose credibility? What if I lose my reputation on helping them? Jesus, you're asking us to do something that is ridiculous. And so I, I'm not even going to ask you anymore. I get it. But I'm out. I don't think this man took the application to heart. I don't think this man was like, that's incredible, Jesus. Thank you, now I know how to live. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a parable of a story. It's a story that doesn't need any more clarity. It's just ridiculously hard to do. And here's what I believe. That there's actually two narratives going on in the story. One is the story of the Samaritan. We learn easily from that because we know the story is called the parable of the Good Samaritan. But the other narrative, the other storyline is actually who the robber was, or excuse me, who the man was who was beat up. And here's what I believe, that we can't act like the Samaritan until we see ourselves as the man on the side of the road. I'm going to say that again because I think that's the crux of the story. We can't act like the Samaritan until we see ourselves as the man on the side of the road. See, the story that Jesus told is also the story of the gospel. It's the story of God coming to us. That in all of our sin and failure, in all of our helplessness on the side of the road, we were on the side of the road. The teacher of the law didn't necessarily see himself there. I'm not on the side of the road. I wasn't beat up by anybody. I have value. I bring dignity to the table. I can bring respect. I have something that's worth. That's why God saved me, right? That's why I'm in, right? And I can't have compassion on people who I don't see like me. And the truth of the gospel, if you will, the truth of the, the message of Jesus is that we are all helpless before God. We all were like that man on the side of the road, stripped of our identity, stripped of our value before God because of our sin. We were worthless in that sense, but we had deep value in a deeper sense. 
our deep value came because of our identity. We were made in the image of God. And I cannot, I cannot offer the, the compassion of the Samaritan until I see that I have been saved by God who is the Samaritan who saves all of us on the side of the road. And so I can't act like the Samaritan until I see that I have been on the side of the road. And I don't think you can either. But I think the gospel demands it of us, absolutely demands it of us, because it is impossible to do otherwise. And so the Samaritan has this compassion, has this mercy that's crazy. And I don't know what you think about when you think of mercy and compassion and the gospel and all that, but here's what I want to say about mercy. Mercy actually drives courage. Mercy drives courage. The Samaritan was the only courageous one of all of them. The religious people, not courageous. They were afraid. They stepped away. The Samaritan courageous. Why? Because of mercy. Compassion drove that. So mercy, compassion drives that courage. Mercy reorients my heart toward God. In the conversation about heaven and hell, that we get what kind of what we want on this side of eternity, my heart needs to be continually reoriented to the heart of God. And so the extension of mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it reorients me to this is what I want in the first place. I want to know this God. I want to grow my heart in this space. Mercy changes me to see who God is more and more. And so, in light of everything, in light of why you're here, what, what you're worth, how you're made, and where you're going, show mercy. In light of all of this, in light of everything, why you're here, what you're worth, how you're made, and where you're going, show mercy. That being said, <laughs> it's not that easy, and I get that. But here's a question I want to I ask, and then I want to wrap it up with this. For the roads that you travel... Who's on the side of the road? Who's on the side of the roads that you travel? Who are the people that you come across who maybe you do go to school with? Maybe they are in the cafeteria for you. Maybe they work with you. Maybe they go to church with you. Maybe they're people you look at and you think, if I were to hang out with them, if I were to support them in this crisis, if I were to be near them, if I were to lend my reputation to them, I could lose. I could lose something. They deserve what they got. They were a druggie, good grief. What do you expect? You're going to overdose from drugs. That's what happens. Why would I give my hard-earned money to someone who doesn't make good decisions anyway? If they stopped doing that, they wouldn't be dead. I can't act like the Good Samaritan. And you can't either. Not for the long term. Unless I see myself as the man who has been on the side of the road. That is the power of the story of the Good Samaritan. Not just that we need to be neighborly, but that God himself has come to us in that space where we were on the side of the road and said, yeah, you, all your future risk, the way you might blow it in the future, the ethical choices that you know, you don't want anyone to know that you're making, I get that, I'm with you. That God and the Son, Jesus Christ, came to us, pulled us off the side of the road and said, I'm here for you, I'm going to save you, it's available to you, no matter what, it's available to you. And until I see my need like that, I will not have... And I don't think you can have either. The heart, the compassion, the good Samaritan. But in light of where you're going, in light of how you've been made, if you've been made to image God, to love him and love the people around you, then this question drives mercy, it drives compassion, it drives action. Who's on the side of the roads that you travel? Who is it that you can show mercy to? Who is it that you have the opportunity to extend in a way that could hurt your reputation, could make your family look at you sideways, could make you lose some friends? Say, no, 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 this is what we do. 
This is what we do. Because God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, has saved us. And we were in that condition too. And so in light of where you're going, in light of how you've been made, in light of who you are, show mercy. Show mercy. Show mercy. I hope this series has been helpful to you to think about who you are, how you've been made, what you're made of, how to, do, how to handle our hang-ups, and how to act in light of where we are going. And I hope, I hope that the parable of the Good Samaritan will stick like a little splinter in your mind, prompting, encouraging, compassion where it'd be easier to walk around, no matter what comes. That's the journey that we are on. Will you pray with me together? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to stop for a little bit, come around these ideas of doing something with where we are going, of understanding how to act in the present in light of our future, and I do pray that you would help us as we try to sort these things out, that you would bring back to us this reminder that you are a God who has saved us while we were also on the side of the road, that you're a God who has extended that kind of grace to us, and even though you had the right to walk around us because of your purity and our potential impurity, you didn't. You walked right up and offered your son Jesus Christ to pay for our sin. And so I pray that you would help us to see in ourselves this truth about who we are and yet how we are made with great value in your image. And I pray that you would help us go and do likewise, to show mercy, to show compassion to those that we are made to love, that we can image, we can show to those we interact with the sacrificial love of God in very tangible ways. So Father, we thank you for the time we've had in this series to think again about who in the world we are and how we are made. And I pray that you would give us the courage to do what we need to do. We ask it in Jesus' name.